You know, being in a great mood is really amazing, isn't it? Like lots of words describe the experience, happy, cheerful, elated, ecstatic, jubilant. We wish we could bottle up that feeling and save it for those days when all we feel like doing is covering ourselves with a blanket and, and spending the day in our rooms. God called what God made good, and so it's no surprise that, that uh, nature, sunrise, sunset, beauty, uh, friendship, a, a good glass of wine, and a hearty meal around the table with friends, and, and countless other things bring us great happiness. But isn't it interesting how being in a good mood depends a lot on our circumstances? When life is good, we feel good. When life is bad, not so good, what then? Is it just as simple as turn that frown upside down? It can seem a bit insincere and fake when someone is in pain or, or experiencing the hard parts of life and they're told to just cheer up. That's why the Christmas season is difficult for many. Because it can feel like putting this shallow, sparkly, hot chocolate tasting, jingle belling veneer over a world or a situation that's hard or that's painful. The truth is, we live in a world that is bathed in beauty and gift and blessing, and we live in a world that is damaged by sin, corrupted. And so it's not a happy fest all the time. Maybe that's why deep down, even in moments of ecstatic glee, we still feel like we long for something deeper, something less fleeting, more resilient in the face of present circumstances for the highs and the lows of life. Maybe what we really long to be on the way is Joy. Joy. Fortunately, the Bible speaks about a way of being in the world defined by joy, which is not dependent on present circumstances, but rooted in a trust in God's faithful and loving character. That's what we explore today in our On the Way series. Let's pray. God, open our hearts and minds to your word for us this day. We pray that it would take root there. Grow us and transform us that we might live for you and bear fruit for your kingdom. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Two scripture readings this morning. First from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 51. Awake, awake, put on strength, arm of the Lord. Awake as in times past, generations long ago. Aren't you the one who crushed Rahab, who pierced the dragon? Didn't you dry up the sea, the waters of the great deep? And didn't you make the redeemed a road to cross through the depths of the sea, a road for the redeemed to pass? Then let those ransomed by the Lord return and come to Zion with singing and with everlasting joy upon their heads. Let happiness and joy overwhelm them. Let grief and groaning flee. Then from Paul's letter to the Philippians, the first chapter, verses 1 through 8. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all those in Philippi who are God's people in Christ Jesus, along with your supervisors and servants, may the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. 
I'm thankful for all of you every time I pray, and it's always a prayer full of joy. I'm glad because of the way you have been my partners in the ministry of the gospel from the time you first believed it until now. I'm sure about this. The one who started a good work in you will stay with you to complete the job by the day of Christ Jesus. I have good reason to think this way about all of you because I keep you in my heart. You are all my partners in God's grace, both during my time in prison and in, my, in the defense and support of the gospel. God is my witness that I feel affection for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, nevertheless, was the song that pain couldn't destroy. Alleluia, nevertheless, you're my joy invincible, joy invincible. That's the chorus of a song written by the band Switchfoot, which if any of you know me uh, long enough know that's my, my favorite band. And I've come back to that chorus many times over the last several years since that song was written. And in particular, that word, nevertheless, and that phrase, alleluia, nevertheless. In some way, it has helped me to cultivate an attitude of joy. It's like this resilient confession of faith. I have to imagine that this must be like the song that was on Paul's heart too, this notion that nevertheless, I experience joy. You see, Paul was writing to the church that he planted in Philippi, a Roman colony in Greece, and he was writing this letter from a Roman prison cell, having experienced hardship and persecution for preaching the gospel of Jesus and starting new faith communities. So this is hardly the circumstances conducive to being in a good mood and feeling happy. And yet, this letter is often called the epistle of joy. The epistle of joy. Because Paul's writing throughout is just saturated with it. And we see it in the passage that we just read. I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. I'm thankful for all of you every time I pray. And it's always a prayer full of joy. I'm glad because of the way you've been my partners in the ministry of the gospel from the time you first believed until now. How can someone persecuted, a part of a religious minority, living under an oppressive empire like Rome, in chains in prison, experience joy? Be full of it. How was Paul basically able to say, I'm in chains, nevertheless, I have joy? Because Paul lived in the way of joy. Paul lived in the way of joy. Of joy, a way that had defined God's people Israel, Jesus, and early followers of Jesus. To get an idea of this nevertheless way of joy that we see in the Bible, it's a good idea to start with the Exodus. Remember that God's people had been held captive as slaves in Egypt, and God raised up a man named Moses to deliver Israel from slavery and oppression. Through Moses, God freed the Israelites from their captors by parting the Red Sea. So parting the water so that they could walk across. And the very first thing that they do when they are freed is rejoice and praise God. Now remember, think for a second, they are still in the middle of the wilderness, still incredibly vulnerable, still so far from the promised land. The only life that they've known is slavery. And yet... Nevertheless, 
They cultivate joy. And it's because it's not defined by their present circumstances, but by God's faithful and loving character. They recognize what God has done on their behalf to deliver them, and they trust in what God ultimately promises to do in leading them to the promised land. And so this is a really defining moment, a foundational moment for what the way of joy looks like in Scripture. It shows that true joy is not determined by circumstances or struggles, but by trust in God's faithfulness in the past and promise for the future. Thus, they can experience joy nevertheless. And this is important because pretty much for the rest of their history in the Bible, Israel exists as a persecuted religious minority living under oppressive empires just like Egypt, whether it was Assyria, whether it was Babylon, whether it was Rome. Again, hardly the circumstances conducive to being in a good mood or feeling happy. And yet, joy was the song that pain, oppression could not destroy. Time and time again in the Old Testament you see that God's people retell themselves the foundational story of Exodus each year at Passover. They remember God's faithful deliverance precisely to cultivate that sense of joy, to be like a baseline source of strength for them in spite of their present circumstances. In other words, God has delivered us before. God will do it again. Alleluia, nevertheless. And this is exactly what's happening in the passage that we read from Isaiah 51. The prophet is addressing Israelites who have uh, survived yet another devastating uh, attack from a foreign empire when Babylon conquered and basically destroyed Jerusalem. Through these kind of rhetorical questions, he's poetically retelling the story of God rescuing the Israelites from Egypt, inviting people to remember God's faithful deliverance. Aren't you the one who crushed Rahab, who pierced the dragon? Didn't you dry up the sea, the waters of the great deep? And didn't you make the redeemed a road to cross through the depths of the sea, a way for the redeemed to pass? You see, this, this isn't just recalling a memory. This is sustaining joy that also gives a glimpse of what God will hopefully do one day when those ransomed by the Lord return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy upon their heads where happiness and joy overwhelm them. This is joy rooted in memory that nurtured joyful expectation that God will deliver again in the future. Yes, God did, so yes, God will. This is joy based on a relationship with a faithful and loving God not present circumstances. This is joy nevertheless. This is alleluia anyhow. This is the way of joy. And this is exactly the stream that Paul is stepping into, the way that Paul is stepping into when he writes to the Philippians, except Paul has even more to step into, has an even more amazing and recent act of deliverance. Paul's joy is also rooted in the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God's deliverance in and through Jesus Christ. And this nurtured a joyful expectation that God would finish the restoration and the new creation work when Christ comes again. 
And so he can experience joy in the midst of being imprisoned. He can encourage Christians who are being persecuted to rejoice because he trusts in God's ability to deliver, to raise the dead, to bring about new creation like God had already done in the past and like God will do again. It's based on a relationship with a faithful and loving God, not on his present circumstances. Now notice that this way of joy in Scripture does not downplay pain or deny reality. It is certainly not just turn that frown upside down. It's a risk. Experiencing a joy that is invincible means taking the risk to trust God's faithfulness. To live like we actually believe it's all true. That God has come through before and that God will win in the end. And so we can honestly acknowledge our sorrow and yet experience joy too. It's joy nevertheless because we have a relationship with the God of joy. Trevor Hudson, uh, a Methodist pastor in South Africa, became friends with Christian philosopher Dallas Willard in the late 1980s. Dallas came to visit him in South Africa often and even had him look over a book that he was beginning to write called Divine Conspiracy. Trevor was always struck by the contagious joy that Dallas seemed to have. In reading over his friend's book, he came to a section that Trevor described as explosive. It stopped him in his tracks. In it, Dallas had written, God is the most joyful being in the universe. God is the most joyful being in the universe. Trevor was reading these words, of course, against the backdrop, backdrop of apartheid in South Africa and admitted that it was a struggle for, for him to see God in this way. It was hard picturing God being happy with so many people suffering. And Trevor thought people needed a theology that focused on the crucified God who suffers with us. And yet, he also acknowledged that reading that statement exposed the uncomfortable truth that joy seemed to be a stranger in his own life. Trevor and Dallas had a chance to, to talk about that chapter one day, and Trevor asked Dallas, Dallas, surely God's, God suffers with us. How, how can God then be the most joyful being in the universe? In his typical quick-witted fashion, Dallas responded with a question of his own. Uh, Trevor, is your God gloomy? Trevor, is your God gloomy? Trevor credits his friend for helping him to see and understand that in all circumstances, God is the God of the crucified Christ and the risen Christ. God is a God who weeps and suffers with us, and God is a God who delights and rejoices too. So joy is not a fake veneer to apply over suffering and pain. It's a quiet, resilient strength to press through. Is your God gloomy? Is your God joyful? A relationship with the most joyful being in the universe should make a difference, should make a way of joy in our own lives. You know, this week, this week as I was writing this sermon, I was trying to think about where practically I see this kind of joy embodied the most. And I came across a, a picture in my feed of 
um, some type of gathering that happened after the Mother Emmanuel shooting in, in Charleston that's been, you know, many years ago. And that's when it, it hit me. When I think about practically where I see this kind of nevertheless joy embodied the most, what kept coming back to my mind was the witness of the black church. As I've learned more about uh, the black church, as I've worshipped in the black church tradition, as I've heard preachers and have gotten to know black pastors and lay, lay people, it is very obvious that they collectively embody this kind of alleluia anyhow, nevertheless way of joy that we see in the Bible. It's incredibly powerful and contagious and inspiring. Whether it's worship itself or the undercurrent of joy that seems to be a part of virtually every prayer or perhaps most of all the nevertheless joy that accompanies even the response to, to a tragedy like Mother Emmanuel or protesting systemic racism, racism there is, there's always something powerfully present that, that seems to help to heal and give strength. This is how uh, Reverend Ebony Marshall Thurman describes it, and I love this. Through it all, through the Middle Passage and American slavery and Jim Crow and black criminalization and the new form of Jim Crow in this 21st century scourge of lynching, I find it remarkable that black people still have the created a culture of joy. That black people can still dance while protesting. That black people sing and laugh and build community and adorn their bodies in all kinds of sartorial elegance. We are a creative people. We are a people who have stared down the barrel of the gun of white supremacy and we still can dance while protesting. I think that is a testament to an abiding joy. In the black church, we would say it like this. This joy I have, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. It's this something deep within that propels us to keep on, to keep fighting, and to keep finding beauty and laughter and love in the world in spite of. That's really the Christian story, she says. The Christian story is that despite the coming of death, there is resurrection, there is life. There is an afterward. There is joy. That is the black joy. We don't want to be overcome or overwhelmed by the tentacles of white violence or white supremacy, but we want to, in spite of that, as we resist, as we fight it, we want to remember the joy that we have. Friends, we need to know that the, this joy we have, the world didn't give it to us and the world cannot take it away because it's based not on the unpredictability of present circumstances, but on the faithfulness of our God who delivers and who will ultimately deliver in the end. And so it's stubborn and resilient. It's contagious. It is a way. I don't know how you come today. Maybe you're happy and you're glad. Your joy is made even more complete by the way you're experiencing God's goodness and grace right now. But I hope that when a moment comes that brings you down, that you tap into this nevertheless way of joy. I imagine others of you are, are not feeling so happy today. Maybe your life is, is not going the way you hoped it would. Maybe you look out at the world and it just looks so depressing, or it's difficult to imagine a feeling like joy being genuine. Maybe some of you don't feel great, but you don't feel terrible either. Whatever you're feeling this morning, take it with you and walk in the way of joy. Living 
like what God did in Jesus Christ and what God still promises to do through him is actually true. God has delivered us before. God will do it again. Alleluia, nevertheless. And that, that nevertheless way of joy is the song that pain or loss will never destroy. Because Jesus is our joy invincible. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.